Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 520. Today's show is brought to you by Relief Factor. So many of the Not Old Better Show audience enjoy researching genealogy, family history, and ancestry. Our guest today, New York Times bestselling author Russell Shorto's new book, Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob, explores all that and more. Admittedly, Russell Shorto also had unusually rich material to work with. Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob, is a painstakingly researched, thoroughly entertaining, multi-generational look at Russell Shorto's paternal grandfather's career as a mobster in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Speaking of the mob, five-time Academy Award-winning filmmaker of the Godfather series, Francis Ford Coppola, says of Small Time, great history mixed with lovely, lingering memories. It's quite an endorsement. Russell Shorto was born in 1959, and his grandfather, also named Russell Shorto, lived until 1981. They knew each other, but small time could easily never have happened. We talk about why the mob's way of doing business is the way it is, and the personal growth that comes from researching your family's roots, especially when they're named Russell Shorto, just like yours. Russell Shorto says, to do family history work, you must have the stomach for it. Russell Shorto is known for narrative history, nonfiction books, including The Island in the Center of the World, about the 17th century North American Dutch colony, New Netherlands, and Revolution Song about the American Revolution. Yet the fascinating life of his own namesake ancestor might have remained unwritten if not for a chance encounter several years ago with an older relative who prodded him to look into it. We'll talk about that and more. So please check out our interview and please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone author Russell Shorto. Russell Shorto, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Paul. I'm happy to be with you. It's great to talk to you. I'm excited to talk about Small Time. It's a wonderful story, just a great book. We're going to jump into that in just a second, but I just want to make sure you're well and your family's good and quarantining is going okay and... uh Maybe maybe you're going to be in line for the vaccine too soon. <laughs> so, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, yes. All are well in my little world. And, uh, you know, everybody's getting a little tired of uh, yeah. hunkering down. But uh, And my daughter is getting married in October. And she's oh, congrats. You know, are people going to be able to come? Yes, and, right. you know, That kind of thing. But otherwise, uh, all are well. And, you know, I'm ready to get the vaccine. But, uh, yeah. you know, they. In, I live in Maryland and they said that uh, – it will. Uh, there's a you know a mass center that will be open by the end of March. Uh, so we'll see. Well, good. Well, best to you. Best to your daughter too, because that'll getting married during a pandemic. That'll be an interesting uh, event, I'm sure. But uh, um, my best to everybody. Thank you for uh, that. That good news, Thank you. of course. Right. Well, let's jump in and talk about small time because it is wonderful. I, I just can't recommend this enough to my audience. It's colorful. It's got this really nice family orientation to it. It's not what I would consider the, to be the normal genealogy book, however, but I, I, we'll talk a little bit about genealogy. But tell us briefly about the story. Um, well, I write narrative history. That's my. That's how I make a living. I've written – this is my seventh book. Uh, I'm most known for my book, The Island at the Center of the World, which is about the Dutch founding of Manhattan. Um, I My previous book to this uh, is called Revolution Song. It's about the American Revolution, and I – 
I, I write narrative history, meaning storytelling. I, I want to find a story. I don't write academic history, uh, but I do write history in the sense that I want things to be footnoted. I want uh, a historical rock bedrock. Um, uh, and so that's what I've always done. This is something different for me because it's family. Uh, it's about my family. I ha always knew growing up since I was very small that my grandfather was some sort of small town mob boss. But I also internalized that notion that we don't talk about that. Um, uh, and so I didn't, and I didn't really think about it. And as a, as an adult who writes history, it didn't really register with me as a topic that I would write about. Um, and if it did, I probably dismissed it because I knew those guys didn't keep notebooks and they're all dead and gone. <laughs> and as I say, I write history that's, you know, you can, you can ground. Uh, so I didn't, um, I didn't go there. And then several years ago, um, my mother's cousin, who's now about 85, um, it turns out I, I didn't know at the time, but he was a numbers runner for my grandfather. And then he had left town and uh, moved to Las Vegas. He was a musician and spent his whole career there uh, playing stand up bass and singing Fly Me to the Moon and songs like that. And uh, he came back home and I was home over Christmas uh, a few years ago. And he said to me, you're the writer in the family. What are you going to do about the story? And I said, what story? And he said, your grandfather, the mob. And so he's the one who kind of, you know, burst the bubble and made me realize this is a family story. This is a good story. This is history. And it's history that people don't know about because it's the history. The backdrop is the history of the small town mob. Everybody knows the story of you know New York and Chicago and those kinds of things, or at least knows a romanticized version of that. Um, but it was everywhere, and it was a, a really kind of ordinary fact of life in towns like Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, or I just did a podcast, uh, an event last night with someone who was talking about Rockford, Illinois, or or, or Schenectady <laughs> or Fresno or Amarillo. I mean, it was in all these towns and it was just normal life. So uh, what I eventually did was uh, um, I, 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 the, the substance of the book is, is I did about 250 hours of interviews with people, with old timers. But then I did this other layer of research, which was I filed for FBI Freedom of Information Act requests and and uh, the the local police department archives and and the newspaper archives and the county courthouse. So I tried to ground, tried to root these memories, which are not necessarily you know accurate, on on this kind of documentary evidence. And so I stitched together what is really ultimately a very personal family story uh, with. And, and tried to tie that into this larger story of the small town mob in America. As I say, the book is wonderful. It, it's getting excellent reviews. I found it and just immediately uh, just fell in love with the story. It, it is great. And I thank you very much for sharing the book with me. The title is, uh, again, Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob. I've got a copy of the book right here in my hands. And you you refer to these these smaller communities, Johnstown and Fresno and Schenectady. I'm, I'm from the central California, just kind of north of Fresno. So I know a little bit about these these small towns, too. And I wonder, 
it, what was it like growing up as kind of this family member of the mob? Did the residents treat you differently because of your family history? Did they? Did everybody know about it and not talk about it? How was that kind of, how did that work for you? That's a very good question, and it's not easy to answer because nobody talked about it. And by the time I kind of came on the scene, my grand, their heyday was the the 40s to the early 60s. And so as I came on the scene, they were fading as a force. And my grandfather, his because of his personal uh, history, was fading. He, um, one of the little sub-themes in the book is he became this progressively worse and worse alcoholic. And that eventually kind of got him booted out of the, out of the operation. Um, and uh, so, you know, by the time I was, say, a teenager and really around, his role in that was long gone. Uh, and there were certainly people, you know, you would it, at family gatherings, somebody would make a quick reference to that. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't like people feared, <laughs> feared me or, you know, what might might come of, you know, uh, running afoul of me or, or, or anything like that. It was a very <laughs> normal um American middle small town uh, upbringing with, you know, with a, it's certainly an Italian American family. So, you know, what I say in the book is uh, long conversations about uh, spaghetti sauce and ants who kissed you on the lips. Those are the ways we were Italian. That's good. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about how the mob did business in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, because it really it was this interesting business. I I liked that aspect of it. There was kind of this. Um, you know, operation that that really went on, but they had politicians on the payroll. There was, you know, uh, um, some some folks there that were tough guys, but it wasn't really like, you know, Raylan Givens talking about small towns in Kentucky and in Justify. These guys weren't gun thugs necessarily, but they made they made a fair bit of money. They had a storefront in the city cigar shop. So, what what was the business part of it like? The I think this is typical. It was in so many ways. My grandfather's story tracks the story of the rise and fall of the Italian mob in America. It starts with prohibition. His parents had first it starts with immigration. His parents had emigrated from a little town in Sicily where I went in my research and uh, the town historian there helped me find the house where my great grandfather grew up, which was built around 1500 and it was, it's now this ruin of a building on the edge of town. Uh, and then, so you're as a researcher, I'm tracking really this whole, not just my great grandparents, but 4 million Americans who came in that relatively short period of time to America answering, uh, ads basically from plantations and coal mines and places like that, that wanted workers who, to do work that Americans didn't want to do. Uh, and then once they got here, were very discriminated and, you know, told where they could live and how they could live. And and then the next generation, their children, that's where my grandfather comes into the picture. Uh, they're raised in these conditions, but they're they go to American schools and they learn to revere George Washington and, and Henry Ford and American capitalism. And yet they are, by and large, excluded from participating. Uh, they weren't, they knew they weren't going to be, college was out of the question for them, let alone becoming, you know, a lawyer or, or manager of a business or whatever. Um, and, 
here comes prohibition where suddenly um, alcohol is illegal and yet everybody seems to want to drink. And so they all, you know, my great grandmother ran a still, her husband had died. She ran a still, she had nine children, ran a still. Uh, Apparently there was a neighborhood um, man who organized people in the neighborhood to do this. And my grandfather grows up running Coke bottles full of moonshine on the streets. And um, that's how he comes of age. And then prohibition ends. And just like people all over the country who were in his position, he shifts to gambling as the next uh, income stream. And he had been trained by these guys to to he was very good at cards and dice. And he was a very good cheat. He was trained to cheat. And that's the kind of other sort of side to him. He became an uh, 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 operator of this business, uh, you know, kind of the mob franchise in town. But he was also on the side a, a really good card shark. Um, and uh, so this other guy comes to town who was sent by the Philly mob to open basically the franchise in Johnstown. Uh, and I'm struck by how much this was done mirroring American capitalism. They opened franchises in all these towns. So he comes to town. His name was Joe. They called him Little Joe. And uh, he meets a girl who happens to be my grandfather's sister. They marry. And my grandfather had grown up. He knew the town from that level. So these two become partners. And then they proceed to open up this, you know, multifarious gambling operation in town. Uh, And uh, they make for the time, you know, enormous amounts of money. It was wide open as long as they paid off the the cops and the mayor and um, uh, everybody knew about it. Everybody over a certain age who I interviewed um, knew them, knew what they were doing, knew that City Cigar, which was this building two doors from City Hall, was where they operated out of. Everybody knew that the mayor would go there every day and stop by and chat with them. Um, and they ran all kinds of gambling. They did, had a numbers game. They did um, different kinds of card games for the hot shots in town where the stakes would get very high. They ran craps games around town. And then they had other ancillary businesses, pool halls and bars and cafes and things like that. It wasn't a real small time operation. I, I remember one of your sources indicates that it's probably close to $2 million a year that was generated. So that's significant cash. Did your grandfather live like a, a wealthy man? It's it's so funny. And again, this tracks what I understand from uh, these operations all over. Uh, you didn't, they had a no Cadillacs rule. They, <laughs> he and Uncle Joe w- always wore suits, but they they were always off the rack. You never had a tailored suit. Um, they lived in, you can see them move from, uh, uh, they start out in the real kind of immigrant ghettos that were, uh, clustered around the steel mill entrances because that's where the town is, it's, uh, energy and the income was based on steel mills. Uh, they moved from there to middle-class neighborhoods and, you know, nice standard middle-class house. Um, so that's that's how they lived and that's how things looked. Um, and, and what they would do though is, you know, so many people told me stories of my grandfather would come into a, a diner and have lunch there 
and then he would leave and then everybody would find out that he had bought lunch for everybody in the place, you know, or, or somebody would need money for their kids to go to college and he would just give it to them and it would be unspoken, you know, eventually pay this back if and when you can kind of thing. People told me those kind of stories. So it was this you know, it's hard for me to figure out what what kind of, what kind of business model is that exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, so many people admired them, and I think they felt that you know uh, they were on the side of the little guys, and that they were, you know, he had grown up in the town, and um, and it was a it was a uh, uh, providing a service which was entertainment basically. And that they were kind of part of the town, part of the fabric of the town. And because, again, the business angle of it really did kind of just surprise me, I suppose, but really interested me because there were there were even, you know, kind of a ladder of of promotion. One, uh, I think one man was promoted from Pittsburgh to San Jose. I thought that was just fascinating that there was this kind of organization. Yeah, change. that seems yeah, exactly. An organizational chain uh, with some, you know, there was I think there was tension all along the way. Like so <laughs> my grandfather and little Joe ran Johnstown and and by extension, Cambria County, which is that county. And this is we're talking about southwestern Pennsylvania, not too far from Pittsburgh. But all the and then there were operations in the towns around there. Altoona had an operation and, and um, Greensburg and New Kensington. Uh, but they were there was always tension. There was always kind of like turf war, you know, they would erupt into turf wars. But uh, um, and and they had an, a, a relationship with Pittsburgh and then Pittsburgh had a relationship with New York. And, and so uh, uh, there again, you know, I'm struck by the extent to which what they were doing um, mirrored the way corporations operate. We will be right back with our interview with author Russell Shorto about his new book titled Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob. You know, many of you know this about me. I am a maniac about getting my exercise even during COVID. All those years of hard exercise have been great for my health, but I have to admit at my age, I regularly get sore and I have to deal with the everyday aches and pains that comes from all of that great exercise. That's why I'm excited today to be able to introduce you to the 100% drug-free relief factor, the everyday pain reliever. I have been taking relief factor every day now for the past few weeks. And let me tell you, it's made a big difference in how I feel. With Relief Factor, I'm experiencing fewer backaches. And since I don't have as much pain, I'm starting to notice that I have more flexibility and energy for exercise. I was skeptical at first, but I am a believer now. The Relief Factor secret is its four key ingredients. Each one works on a different metabolic pathway to help your body heal the inflammation that causes many everyday pains. If you have everyday aches and pains too, just like me, remember Relief Factor is 100% drug-free and designed to be taken every single day so that you can get out and stay out of pain. To make it as easy as possible for you to try Relief Factor, the father-son founders Seth and Pete Talbot created the three-week quick start and discounted it to just $19.95. So here's your offer. Do what I did. 
Go to relieffactor.com slash better. All this is going to be in the show notes, but go to relieffactor.com slash better and order a three-week quick start for yourself. You'll be glad you did. Again, to claim your three-week quick start for $19.95, go to relieffactor.com slash better. And now back to our interview with author Russell Shorto of the great, excellent family history book, Small Time, a story of my family and the mom. We're with Russell Shorto. Russell Shorto is the author of the, the excellent new book, Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob. My own family, I come from a family of immigrants from, from Holland, as a matter of fact, and um, there are lots of stories that have come down uh, through the years. Uh, some of those stories we discuss as a family pretty openly, <laughs> some, some we don't. <laughs> How much did you and your father talk about some of these stories? Because your father has a really interesting role in the book, and I thought we'd get into a little bit of that now. Um, Birdsong, I guess, is your... Yeah, very good, yes. Uh, uh-huh. Well, my, my, you know, I've mostly written about Dutch history, so mm-hmm, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I yep. know Dutch, and, and, and I'm connected with Dutch culture very much. Um, yeah, good. Uh, and what you say about uh, families and stories and stories people tell or don't tell is, you know, it, I'm struck by how much this story of mine is, I mean, it's obviously an Italian-American story, but it's just an immigrant story. Mm-hmm. And so and and it's a family story. And, and mm-hmm. so much of it is uh, wrapped around those kinds of issues. The fact that um, families have secrets and people tell or don't tell, you know, everybody's aware of it to a certain extent. Um, um, yeah. So the story is about my father's father um, and my father was his eldest son. And I always knew growing up that um, they had a very strained, very difficult relationship. And somehow I knew that it related to back then. It related to my grandfather's um, business. And um, I, in fact, grew up with this notion that um, my grandfather had wanted his son to take a part you know, to have a role in the business, but my father had refused. And I had this notion as a child that he did that for us, you know, this valiant thing. He was kind of shielding us from that. Um, in the course of researching the book and talking to some of the old boys who had worked for my grandfather, I learned that that was utterly untrue, that my dad had in fact desperately wanted to be in, but his father, in fact, would beat him up when he caught him hanging out at the pool hall that was their center of operation. I mean, really beat him. Um, and I think, you know, I'm just, this is me kind of trying to understand, but I think what was going on was, you know, first of all, this is this classic male inability to articulate. And so you do it, you know, with, 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 physical means. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather grew up at a time when there was no other option. And this was the, he was a smart kid and this was the path that was in front of him. And so he took it by the time his son comes along, it's the early fifties and he didn't need to do that. Uh, it wasn't the early fifties was not like today, but by then you didn't have that same level of discrimination against this immigrant group. Um, so he had other options. And so my grandfather, I think, was determined that he not follow that path. But that failure to communicate between the two of them, I think, um, sets off this whole unfortunate um, 
and again, I think this has to, you know, this sort of thing carries out in so many families, uh, this, this lack of a relationship, this incredibly strained relationship, even though they lived in the same town and kind of, uh, had overlapping circles. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all of that is part of what I kind of, what struck me and what I uncovered in the book. And my dad, then I, I, it's funny that it, at first I, I did, I tried not to include him in my research, which is the strangest thing because he's sit, he stood right there and the, it was almost like I had to look around him to, to get to the story. Um, uh, but finally I, I asked if he wanted to help me in this task of finding his father. And he said, yes. And to his credit, you know, my dad was a, he died, unfortunately, uh, near the end of, uh, my work on the book. And, but uh, he was a big uh, AA guy, and he he would always say, "You're only as sick as your secrets." So I think he really, I mean, he wanted to help me, but really, he was also doing this for himself. He wanted to find what we could find about his father. He said to me that um, at one point he said, uh, "My father never broke character. Like he, it's like." He knew his own father growing up was putting on, playing on, a, like playing a part or something almost. And um, so our our goal together as father and son was to try to find this real figure who who was next, who was behind us both in the in the generational chain. I'm a father of two boys, and um, certainly father and son relationships are complex. You, you indicate that in the book, and. Before my father died, uh, which was recent, um, we had some time together, and it was it was healing in many ways. You, you had that too. You mentioned that your father passed uh, before the book was published, but he did help you write the book. And so I wonder, how did it deepen the connection between you and your father? It was, you know, I, for reasons I go into in the book, it's kind of you know hard to unpack these things in a in a conversation. But uh, I had a good relationship with my dad through most throughout my life. Um, but it, it, there was always a little distance. And I think the distance was, I was the one who put that distance there. And I think it had to do with all of this stuff, uh, that was in our background. Um, and so once I asked him to work with me on this, it became, I mean, we became closer than we'd been since I was a child. Uh, we really spent a lot of time together. Um, and he, I mean, it was often as simple as I'd go and go to my parents' house and I'd turn on the recorder and we'd start talking and I'd ask something about back in the day and they would start talking and then some name would come up and I'd say, well, who was that? And my dad said, oh, you don't know him. And he'd just pick up his phone and call the guy and he'd lived across town and some guy in his eighties or whatever. And he'd say, are you busy? We're coming over. <laughs> We'd go over and sit, you know, spend an hour or two with that guy. And there was another little, you know, window onto the past that would open up. And maybe from that, then he would mention something else. And and so you end up with this vast um, uh, uh, field in which to operate and, and this growing awareness of the town and, and of your past and of your, you know, what's I, I've become a big uh, proponent of family, people doing family history in the course of working on this book, because, um, it's, it's, you know, you, you, a, a lot of who you are is back there and, um, it can be very rewarding to, to do that. But I also have to say that it, 
it's um, scary and and you open up a can of worms and and a lot of the stories that you were that you understand about your background and your family are stories that were packaged for you as a child and um, and uh, once you as an adult really decide you're going to explore them things get complicated and things might get ugly and as that's with that story that I told a few minutes ago you might find out it's exactly the opposite of, of what you were told. Um, so it's rewarding, but there are, you know, there are pitfalls. <laughs> we're going to put links up to where you can find out more information about Russell Shorto, particularly the website tellyourfamilystory.com, and we'll have links to that too. You did quite a long look at your family. I think it was dating back to about 1900. As, as you say, it's a variant of the, of the immigrant story. Sicily, Southern Italy, and the stories did shape you. I wonder if you could maybe just end our interview today by, by telling us how you've changed in writing the book. Um, I think that um, doing this kind of work is—I don't know if it's the last stage, but it's a—it's a, um, a a really prominent part of finally growing up. Um, Finally, understanding who you are, where you came from uh, in, you know, so many Americans uh, have an immigrant story and so much of so much of your life is shaped by that, by the immigrant experience, uh, whether it's discrimination that, you know, what that generation goes through, what the next gen, how that affected the next generation. And these things really do carry through. And, um, so I think that, you know, in the main, uh, this changed me by, by kind of deepening that connection to the past. You know, I write history and the big difference about doing family history is this awareness that you and your family are part of history and, um, what that means, how that kind of roots you in the past and, and gives you this further, wider, deeper sense of who you are and your place in the world. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Wonderful story. Again, Russell Shorto has been our guest. His new book is Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob. Such a great book. Again, Russell Shorto, thanks for your generous time today. Thanks for the great book and all your, t your, your efforts and energy behind uh, family history. I think this is uh, inspiring to so many. And again, we're going to put links up to where you can find more information about Russell Shorto. I will tell you this too, selfishly, uh, we'd love to have you back as you write more about family history or history or whatever it is that you're working on. We'd love to talk to you on an ongoing basis. Sure. That'd be lovely. Thank you very much, Paul. And thank you for a very thoughtful interview. Thank you to sponsor Relief Factor for sponsoring today's show. My special thanks to author Russell Shorto for his generous time today. And my thanks to you, my dear Not Old Better Show audience, for your company today. And I hope you'll join me next time. Be safe. Be healthy. Please practice smart social distancing and get in line for the vaccine. Remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.